Good evening and welcome to Tiski Sour. This evening, I'm not joined by Ash Sarkar, who is recovering um, from having some wisdom teeth removed. Wish her well. I am joined instead by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me to replace the immarcessible Ash Sarkar for one night only. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the health and care bill. Is it set to privatise the NHS? We will be talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, I have a great guest on for that. Um, and we're going to talk about Boris Johnson's very bizarre speech today and whether his luck is running out, whether it's time to sell shares in Boris Johnson. Since its founding in 1948, the NHS has been run as a centralised national organisation the commissioning and delivering of services to patients being the responsibility of one national organisation. The Health and Care Bill, which MPs vote on tomorrow, will change that. Instead of services being provided by one central body, an independently run Integrated Care Systems, or ICSs, will be created. Each will take responsibility for planning and delivering care in 42 separate regions. So they're, they're breaking up the NHS. ICSs will be made up of GP surgeries, community and mental health trusts, hospitals and other primary care services, along with local authorities. They will also controversially incorporate private businesses. It's a big change which the Health Secretary Sajid Javid has said will empower local health and care leaders to pursue new and innovative ways of delivering for people and communities. However, campaigners are suspicious that it will instead deliver privatisation by the back door. Unite the Union have organised a campaign against the bill. Um, they have tweeted about it that the health and care bill will encourage the rationing of health care and should worry every family in the UK. They have so far won the support of MPs including Rebecca Long-Bailey, John McDonnell and Barry Gardner. The campaign to stop the health and care bill has also won celebrity endorsements. Stephen Fry recently tweeted, Together we can stop the health bill and call for re-nationalisation. He also posted the following video. Hello. Like many British people, all of us really, I've spent my life with a kind of assumption that the NHS will always be there for us in the way it always has been. Free service and beautiful attention and kindly efficiency at the point of need. Ah, it's a wonderful service, and all through my life, although I've been blessed with reasonable health, I've gone in for an inpatient, outpatient, an operation here, a, a treatment there, and it's just such a wonderful, wonderful part of being British. And I know because I spend a, a fair amount of time in the United States and I've seen what a nightmare healthcare, if you can call it that, is in America. A real nightmare. And the idea of that infecting our NHS is, is like the idea of a new pandemic, frankly. That kind of infection would destroy and compromise the health service that we've grown to depend on, to love and to be in, incredibly proud of. And our research shows that American corporations are embedding themselves in our NHS. And this is a really dangerous and a very, very worrying turn of events. So does the health and care bill genuinely risk a slide into an American-style health system? I'm joined now by Dr. Bob Gill, who ha has himself just torn himself away from a protest outside Parliament against the bill. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, why do you think this, this bill is so dangerous? 
This is the culmination of a 30-year stealth privatization with successive legislation. And what this bill will actually do, you mentioned the creation of ICSs, but what they're modeled on is the managed care system in America. And what managed care means is insurance companies, and in this case, predominantly United Health, through their UK subsidiary Optum, will have control of budgets. And the business model is to create profit streams through the denial of care. So NHS budgets handed over to private corporations so they can make a profit. This is not a threat. This is the design of the legislation. And we've had preceding policy papers and clear documentation of the direction of travel, including the five-year forward view, Simon Stevens' five-year forward view, and the long-term plan. All of this will be culminating in this bill, which actually seals a deal, ensuring that U.S. corporations dominate the NHS. The government would say, look, all we're doing is we're, we're decentralizing healthcare. These new boards, these new organizations that we're going to create, they bring together healthcare providers, they bring together local government. Yes, they also bring together some businesses which provide services to the NHS. Where within that do we get to denying people care to provoke demand for a private insurance model? How do we get from what they're explicitly saying the policy is to what you believe its consequences will be? Okay, so the legislation is actually giving a legal lock-in to things that have already been happening for over a decade. So in the mid-2000s, you had something called world-class commissioning, where several companies were brought into the NHS to operate uh, back office function in terms of commissioning services. And clinical commissioning groups, which are fronted by GPs, supposedly making decisions from the front line, in reality, they were a smokescreen window dressing for private corporations dominating the control of budgetary flows and introducing their private systems within the NHS. The research Stephen Fry was referring to uh, was work that our group has done, which shows United Health Optum having employed the, the mechanisms within the NHS. They've been in charge of a training program, training NHS leaders, training local councillors. They've introduced their data analytics systems to use patient data as a mechanism to risk stratify which are the insurance mechanisms for the denial of care. So this is no hypothetical uh, conclusion we've come to. The mechanisms, the personnel, the data analytics are already in place across the NHS, and this bill makes it all legally legitimate. It's the final nail in the privatisation agenda. Let's get up a quote from Sajid Javid. So in a letter to the Health and Social Care Committee, he said the fundamental aim of this legislation is to put into statute the request the NHS made of government in 2019 while making a number of other changes to support improvement across the health and care system. So the government say they're just responding to requests from the NHS. The NHS is saying, you know, these are the kind of changes we need to, to make this organization work better. Is there anything to that? Is, is there support for this at the top of um, NHS England? Well, let's just deconstruct that. What he, the way he phrases that, the NHS is asking us to do this. But why is he phrasing it like that? It's because of legislation dating back to 2012, where the Health and Social Care Act made, made the NHS into a quango. It made it an arms-length entity. It repealed the duty of the Secretary of State to provide health care, in essence, legally abolishing 
the NHS. That's why he's phrasing it that way. If you look at the NHS leadership, where do they come from? Well, the, the outgoing chief executive of the NHS, Mr. Simon Stevens, was formerly president for global expansion of United Health, which is America's largest private insurer. So you had an insurance guy leading the NHS for seven years, and surprise, surprise, he's recommending this legislation to the Secretary of State. The leadership of the NHS, if you look at on a trust level, on the clinical commissioning group level, it is dominated by the privatization lobby, and I mean the think tanks, the management consultancies like McKinsey, the big four accountancy firms, these are the agents of the privatization, and they control the NHS in all the key positions. I haven't met an NHS leader uh, in post who actually represents the public service ethos of the NHS as devised by Beveridge back in the 1930s and early 1940s. We have a leadership which is totally on board with the privatization, and we have this artificial construct that the NHS is asking us to do this. It's nonsense. Thatcher Javid isn't driving these reforms. It's being driven by the City of London and multinational corporations like United Health and McKinsey. Finally, um, I was looking up the, the British Medical Association and their position. I think they want this bill to be significantly amended. They're not going to support it in, until it is. And I presume as the, it's being voted on the third reading tomorrow, it's, it's not going to be significantly amended. It, is your position that if this was amended to sort of take out the role of private businesses, it could be OK? Or do you think the whole intention of this bill is just wrongheaded? The whole intention is to complete the privatisation plan, which was which was documented by Oliver Letwin back in 1988, Britain's biggest enterprise document produced for, for the CPS. There is no amending this bill. The bill needs to be scrapped altogether. We need to be calling for a renationalisation of the NHS. As for the British Medical Association, I'm afraid they haven't st stood up to the NHS. If we look back, they failed to fight against the 2012 Act. They failed to uh, successfully back the junior doctors. In fact, they sabotaged the junior doctors' industrial action in 2016. In 2019, the BMA railroaded through the biggest contract change for GPs, which was essential for this integrated care system move, without a ballot of their members. So the BMA are complicit. What we're having is a theatrical exchange with the government, but unfortunately our health unions have been very weak on this. And what the opposition is calling for, these amendments won't add up to anything. It doesn't matter whether these companies sit directly on boards or whether their bidding is done by proxies, as Simon Stevens has been doing. Dr. Bob Gill, thank you so much for speaking to us this evening. And especially as I know that you tore yourself away from a protest against this, this precise piece of legislation. So thank you for speaking to us this evening. Aaron, I want to bring you in on this. Obviously, there was quite a lot of background noise. We might have continued that for a bit longer, but as I said, just taking time out of a demo. So we're very understanding of, of some noise from a cafe in the background. Aaron, my question for you is about the media. There's been lots of comments on the YouTube video I can see, people saying this hasn't been covered at all in, in the BBC. And that is very notable. Normally, when I'm doing research for shows, you know, I do read a lot of news articles, the BBC, The Guardian, The Times, whatever. No one is talking about this apart from NHS campaigners, as far as I can tell. Why do you think that is? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, when it comes to the BBC, there is, um, <clears throat> there is a serious deficit of resources to actually increasingly do proper journalism. 
sadly, as I've frequently said before, sort of the political journalists, if it's not an interesting Westminster story, they don't really want to talk about it, which is a big problem if you care about industrial organizing, if you care about public service provision, which is being eroded in, in a way like this. And I guess maybe there's also, there's a, there's a timidity, and we're talking specifically about the BBC here, there's a timidity towards the government because there have been overt signals from the government in recent weeks and months and years that they will create a political reckoning if there's any kind of scrutiny towards them from the BBC, most recently from Nadine Dorries. And they've explicitly said, you know, they would like to quite substantially change the BBC's funding model. Uh, and of course, there's been background noise for 20, 30, 40 years, but it's just pressed on every time that there's a concern that, that the BBC might actually do its job, which it hasn't done with the government for a very long time. Uh, with regards to the other publications out there, I mean, who else is really going to cover it? The reason why you've got outlets like Byline or Open Democracy, who, who've done phenomenally well in the last 12 months, and, and, and good luck to them, and they're doing a great job unmasking a lot of the outsourcing stories, the corruption stories, but they shouldn't be doing that. I mean, that should be the bread and butter for the BBC and The Guardian and The Mirror. Now, The Mirror can't do so much because it hasn't really got the resources like it used to. It used to be Britain's largest paper by circulation. The Guardian similarly struggles, and it obviously doesn't think there's a market for this stuff. The BBC has obviously a political aspect to it. It's being leaned on. And also its internal people generally think, oh, it's not really a sexy story. So if you're a campaigner, yeah, yeah, it can feel like you're a little bit lost. All you've got is maybe open democracy, byline, the morning star, and Navarre media. And clearly, for a story of this substance and importance, that's deeply concerning. Uh, but, but I would locate the reason as to why that's an issue, like I say, across a, a number of kind of paths, if you, if you will. People like Laura Koonsberg hate to be nasty, but I think the government as well, explicitly saying the things it's saying, yeah. It's so the BBC doesn't do its job and so it self-censors. I should say for completeness, I did find an article in The Big Issue. I did some of my research from that. So, you know, credit where it's due. Let's go straight on to our next story. In August 2020, protests broke out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after police shot a young black man multiple times in the back, paralyzing him from the waist down. During those protests, a supporter of the pro-cop Blue Lives Matter movement travelled to Kenosha with a semi-automatic AR-15-style rifle. 17-year-old Carl Rittenhouse says he took the assault weapon to Kenosha to protect a car dealership from rioters. What happened next? Shook America. Using the AR-15 he brought to the protest, Carl Rittenhouse shot two people dead and injured another. His first victim was Joseph Rosenbaum, aged 36, who died after being shot in his groin, his back, and his left hand. He was unarmed. Second, Rittenhouse killed Anthony Huber, aged 26. Huber died from a shot to the chest. He, like Rosenbaum, was unarmed. Finally, Rittenhouse shot Grosskreutz, aged 27. Grosskreutz was shot in the arm and lost 90% of his bicep. Grosskreutz did have gun. The free shootings led to Rittenhouse being charged with two counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. But on Friday, Rittenhouse was acquitted by a jury on all charges. The jury accepted the defense's argument that Rittenhouse had acted in self-defense. The case has divided the country. In New York, racial justice demonstrators protested the verdict. To be honest, I almost 
forgot what was happening, but I quickly got reminded today. We all quickly got reminded today when a white man who shot two people was let go. And you know what the sad part is? He's now going to move on. He's going to go to college. He's going to live his life and just think, you know what? I got away with killing people. It don't matter. I can do anything. That was the progressive response to the acquittal on the other side of the political divide. The right have treated Rittenhouse as a hero. Madison Cawthorn is a Republican congressman. This was his reaction to the verdict. Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty, my friends. You have a right to defend yourselves. Be armed, be dangerous, and be moral. Be armed, be dangerous, and be moral. You saw there the caption read, Kyle, if you want an internship, reach out to me. Cawthorn, though, was not the first Republican to offer Rittenhouse a job. This was Congressman Matt Geitz speaking during the trial. Thank you for your advocacy for Kyle Rittenhouse. He is not guilty. He deserves a not guilty verdict. And I sure hope he gets it because you know what? Kyle Rittenhouse would probably make a pretty good congressional intern. We may reach out to him and uh, see if he'd be interested in helping the country uh, in, in additional ways. So how did an American teenager shoot dead two unarmed protesters with an AR-15 and not just get away with it, but emerge a hero to many? Earlier today, I spoke to Olayemi Olerin, a New York defense lawyer and analyst with the Law and Crime Network. I began by asking Olayemi to explain the legal arguments that the jury accepted when they found Rittenhouse not guilty. The defense argued that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. Their story is that Kyle Rittenhouse came there, you know, to offer his services as security for a car dealership and that, you know, he's not formally an EMT, but he was there in a medic capacity and that Rosenbaum is the first man killed that night, that Rosenbaum, who has a series of mental health issues, had been acting erratically and screaming at him and ran after him. So that is the argument that he feared for his life so much because he thought that Rosenbaum would take his gun. That's the argument, that it was self-defense because what if Rosenbaum got his gun and shot him with it? So that's why he had to act in self-defense. So he then shoots uh, Rosenbaum four times. When he shoots Rosenbaum, he turns around to run. At that point, the the protest breaks out into you know frenzy. They think that there's an active shooter. So they're trying to stop him and take him down, basically to stop him from shooting somebody else. So that's when the second man, Anthony Huber, hits him over the head with um, a skateboard. He hits him with a skateboard. And then he turns around and he runs away. Kyle Rittenhouse shoots him. And then after that, the third man um, has a gun, but obviously is hesitant to shoot. All the other protesters don't engage in that particular strategy. They say he points the gun at him to stop at which point uh, Rittenhouse shoots him. It is a non-fatal wound. It's in his arm. And so the third guy survives. But that's the argument that this was self-defense brought on by the fact that Rosenbaum was the initial aggressor and that Rittenhouse feared that he would take his gun and that would make him a fatal threat. From an outsider's perspective, or from my perspective, let's just say, let's be less abstract, the, the fact that someone can go to a protest with an AR-15, shoot dead two people who are unarmed, and then claim self-defense and get off the hook, that just seems, frankly, ridiculous. What I'm less clear about personally, was this a problem with what happened in the courtroom and what the jury were told and what the jury decided, or was this a problem with the law itself? Was this correct in terms of an unjust law or was this an unjust decision? No, it's it's not an unjust law, right? Honestly, we never see self-defense applied in this way. The way it sounds ridiculously ridiculous to you is how it sounds to anybody that's pretty much a legal professional. It flies in the face of our understanding of the doctrine because think about it. Typically in determining whether or not somebody is, you can use self-defense 
insofar as you believe this person is a fatal threat to you. You can only use the amount of force that you think is necessary to stop them. So the idea that this unarmed person is a threat to the person with the AR-15 because he might get the gun, so you have to shoot him four times fatally is absurd. It's, it's, a, it's as absurd as it sounds. But what happened in a trial, several things, right? Not only is the judge making unfavorable rulings, but it also has a lot to do with how the prosecution structured this case. Despite the fact that this case has the political and social context, it obviously has of being about race and Black Lives Matter and the underlying shooting. The, the way the prosecutor framed it was that his, this was about fame. His argument was not that Rittenhouse acted, you know, as a vigilante or, you know, the fact that he's a proud boy or blue, blue Lives Matter, any of the other things that are, you know, widely associated with this and why he was there and why he did what he did. His argument was he did this because he wants to be famous. Now, the problem with that is his only real evidence to that fact to say, you know, that's the motive. This was some kind of intentional fact that he went out there pursuing it for fame was Instagram, I think his TikTok, his TikTok bio where it says his bio, his bio says, bro, I'm just trying to be famous. And, you know, he wanted to use these photos he took with the Proud Boys and all basically that his right wing press run he did after the case proved that he was acting in terms of fame. The judge blocked all of that. The judge pretty much didn't let he didn't let the picture of him with the Proud Boys or flashing the white power symbols. in. he didn't really allow him to cross examine too much into the Instagram bio. So the prosecutor was really wasn't able to make that case. And on top of that, the prosecutor kind of just conceded to what the defense arguments were. You know, there had been a lot of national, international coverage on the fact that the judge ruled that they couldn't call them victims, right? They could call them looters and rioters, which I'll tell you separately how I feel about that. But nevertheless, that becomes moot when the prosecutor got up in his opening statement and referred to the victims in his own case as such. He actually allowed and kind of participated in vilifying his own victims, and that makes it hard to convict. His basic argument was, yeah, these people are terrible. The, the protests are riots because they ultimately don't support the movement. That's what it really was about. The prosecutor didn't support any of these things. He had the same negative characterization, so he basically helped the defense make their case. So ultimately, would you say th this boils down to an unjust decision because there was an incompetent prosecutor and a biased judge, and that led the jury to, to make the wrong call? And just general right privilege in America. Like, let's be honest. I, I covered this case as an analyst on Law and Crime Network, so I did watch it day in, day out. So I know all the ways in which it was specifically was unjust. However, even if I hadn't watched it, I wouldn't have been surprised by the outcome. The reality is that's what happens in America. Like a white supremacist gets in court and they're protected. I, I, that's what we all thought would happen. Is this just case closed now? Can can the, the families of, of the victims of the deceased now take him to civil court or, or is Rittenhouse just now completely off the hook? Is this the end of the story? They can take him to civil court. That's pretty much their, their only bet. They can't do anything criminally. The prosecutors, their hands would be tied. It's, it would be double jeopardy. There's a world where they could pursue some level of federal charges of some kind if they really wanted to, if the U.S. government wanted to, but they don't, right? We've heard Joe Biden. We've heard his comments. We know pretty much they want to let sleeping dogs lie. In all actuality, these cases only get the kind of national attention it does because of, you know, protests and backlash. And they go through these situations where they, you know, they have a trial and what really just feels like a sham just to say they did it. And once it's done, it's like, it's a wrap. We did it. We gave it justice. That's why I heard Joe Biden say, you know, we have to trust in the law. And he made a decision, even though he was the first person when it was his election cycle, disavowing Rittenhouse as a white supremacist. But now it's trust in the law. They made the right call because they don't actually care. They just really want to hear us stop talking about it. Lots of people on Twitter, I'm thinking of people like Glenn Greenwald, who have basically been saying this has been completely covered incorrectly by the liberal press. They demonized Carl Rittenhouse. They said this was all about white supremacy. Actually, that was just herd mentality, sort of jumping to conclusions. Is there anything to what those guys are saying or do you just, do you just dismiss that out of hand? He's a white supremacist. 
I like I want to state that like that's an important point. They like to get into the semantics argument of whether or not the left the left describes him as that or whether or not it's right. There's this issue in America where people don't want to call a spade a spade like as a crime to point out that the sky is blue and two plus two equals four. The man is an identifying white supremacist. He is the one kicking it with the Proud Boys, an identified white supremacist group. He is the one that espouses these views. His entire social media is filled with that endorsement. We didn't come up with the impression that he's a, he supports Blue Lives Matter or he supports Proud Boys. He is the one kicking it with the Proud Boys doing white power symbols. So you can only call a duck a duck. So that's really where I stand on that. How dangerous a moment do you think this is for America? And I suppose also from a legal perspective, I mean, what precedent does this have? Is there now just complete free reign for white supremacists to go to Black Lives Matter protest, take a gun, say, oh, I felt a little bit intimidated and then shoot a bunch of people? Yes. Yes, it, it very much so opens the door. By expanding self-defense in this way, it legitimizes this idea of let's shoot first, right? Think about it this way. Kyle Rittenhouse was not the only person that had a gun, that had a gun at this protest, but nobody else killed anybody else. There had never been a person killed at a Black Lives Matter protest by a Black Lives Matter protester, even whether or not guns were present because they don't, they're not inclined to engage in that kind of violence. Now imagine these these antagonizers come on both ends, right? Beyond the fact that it incentivizes these, you know, white supremacists or these people that oppose the Black Lives Matter movement to feel comfortable going to the protests armed and then say they're afraid of the people they voluntarily showed up to engage with, right? Beyond that, it also incentivizes the protesters to act violently first too, because now all of these people that had weapons but chose not to shoot Rittenhouse, they tried to disarm, disarm him other ways. That's why there was this frenzy. Even the third man who finally does pull his gun out wasn't inclined to shoot, does not act fatally. Instead, now in situations like this, they might think, you know what, this is an antagonizer. They are armed with an open rifle. Better to shoot first, ask questions later, explain it later because I'm afraid because this person could likely kill me and they will get off. So there's nothing to stop them from doing it. So it absolutely, absolutely opens the door for that. And it's incredibly dangerous in a world where Black Lives Matter is the largest civil rights movement in American history. As of last year, there were protests in over 550 different places in this country. That's every day from like summer 2020 onwards. Those protests are still happening. So imagine what that invites. What seems so strange about this case is that normally you've got someone who has shot someone dead. They've turned up with a massive gun and people, you know, bystanders try to disarm them with something like a skateboard or trying to grab the gun. Now, in most contexts, you'd think that's it. That person's a hero. You know, you've risked your life to go and try and disarm a gunman, someone who's already shot someone dead. In this situation, though, to go up and try and disarm them is itself something which justifies you being killed in the eyes of the law. Is everyone that when a mass shooter turns up, people are going to be like, oh, well, I better not I better not provoke the mass shooter in case it becomes yeah. legitimate self-defense. I think what this case really ultimately boils down to is the specific circumstances of what it was about, right? The only reason why we see a case like this where three white guys get shot and two of them are killed and they are somehow vilified in the same way that black people would in the media in America, it's because of what they were doing it for. That's what it is. There's a historical um, reality of that in this country. What happens to allies and quote unquote people that support abolitionist movements and black civil rights movements, they're treated, they are, they, they lose whatever benefits they get in white privilege, right? It's this idea that if you make a choice to side with these people or to support these people, you lose that benefit and that protection. So that's what's happening here. In these situations where there'll be, you know, a school shooter or the different the many, many, many different tragedies we regularly see in America because they insist on not doing anything to do it about it. 
there it's it'll be handled differently. It'll be addressed differently. Always be framed differently because the reason why these guys are being talked about this way is because of what they were supporting. It's the reason why the media doesn't show their pictures. Think about it. Like we hear about this case every single day. How often have you seen the three victims? I didn't even I I follow the case and I hadn't seen the third victim for a long time. They didn't. They weren't showing their pictures because the people that typically would support or uh, would support this kind of behavior or would support people like Rittenhouse, even they might feel less inclined because a lot of this is just steeped in racism to support the idea of it being that you shot three white guys. So they don't show them as much. They frame it as he killed three black pe- three people at a Black Lives Matter protest. So the people that aren't paying close enough attention feel comfortable her- heralding him as this kind of you know white savior and patriot to the right American way. And that's really what it's about. It's really just all steeped in racism. That was Olayemi Alurin speaking to me earlier. I saw someone in the comments mention that's the same guest who was on Brianna Joy Gray's Bad Faith podcast. It is. Um, I've listened to that whole hour and a half podcast. It's super, super enlightening. So if you want to hear more from Olayemi, I do recommend checking that out. Next story. The Kyle Rittenhouse case shows that in America, you can turn up to a demonstration with an AR-15, shoot free people and get away with it. What's more, if you turn up to a protest and shoot free people, you might end up a national celebrity. Both during and after the trial, Rittenhouse was praised by numerous senior Republicans, including Donald Trump. He's now done a primetime interview with Fox News's Tucker Carlson. It wasn't Kyle Rittenhouse on trial in Wisconsin. It was the right to self-defense on trial. And if I was convicted no one would be able, no one would ever be privileged to defend their life against attackers. Remember when Rittenhouse says it was the right to self-defense on trial, he means it was the right to turn up to a BLM demo and shoot unarmed people with an AR-15. It wasn't self-defense by any ordinary understanding of the term. The case of Rittenhouse and his acquittal is one clear example of how extreme American political culture is right now. And it could get even worse. Trump-aligned candidates are winning across the country in Republican primaries, and there is every chance there could be a unified Republican government by 2024. When I say unified, I mean controlling all three arms. These are Joe Biden's approval ratings at the moment. So 52.3% disapprove, only 42.7% approve, so not particularly popular. And according to an Emerson College poll, which the website 538 gives an A rating, Trump would win a head-to-head contest with Biden if a presidential election were held today. Aaron, this all has me incredibly worried. America is a declining power, but it's still an incredibly important country. And a deaf cult is one of their two major parties. And I think it could be even worse this time around because when Donald Trump won in, in 2016, the fact that it was a bit of a fluke, that no one expected it to happen, did mean that he, he entered office with you know, his legitimacy questioned. And, and I do think that limited what he was able to do when in office. Now we could get to 2024 where Trump or some other Trumpist candidate is leading a unified Republican party starts as the clear favorite, their victory is seen as inevitable, that's going to be a much scarier prospect. And especially, obviously, I think about this on an international perspective as much as I do whatever's going to happen domestically in America. But we are in a situation where we need governments to be acting at least with some semblance of rationality when it comes to climate change. And this just seems like the biggest 
spanner that could be thrown into the works mm. and it just seems so dangerous i mean am i being overly pessimistic no not at all i think i think the united states today is in a similar position to where britain was in the 1930s in that it's an empire in decline internally externally it has issues but it hasn't quite handed on the baton of, of global hegemon the apex of geopolitical power and it went for a long time because, of course, it militarily has bases in more than 150 countries. China has bases in like two countries. So the idea that China, yes, it's going to be this economic titan. Yes, it's going to be hugely technologically innovative. It's already outpacing the U.S. in certain industries and areas. Militarily, it's not going to overtake the U.S. for a, a while yet. But you can, you can clearly see America on the decline, both within its borders and beyond them. Externally, a great example of this is the Nord Stream pipeline, you know, Germany making overtures to Russia at the height of US empire, even 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't really do that. Afghanistan, of course, another expression of that, the Afghan pullout was just a, a complete disaster. You had the American security establishment saying, you know, this won't be a case of on the Monday we say it's fine, on the weekend we'll have to leave. And then actually on the Tuesday they left. Nobody saw that coming. Similarly, with their response to COVID, again, it shows a power in, in real, real decline. Now, how does that interface with the politics and the kind of electoral reality? Well, the US has its midterms, which are the elections you alluded to at the start of this piece, November next year. So a year from now, basically, are the midterms, which will be a big test of the Democrats. What it looks like right now, and of course, things can change, is that the Republicans will make major gains in those midterms. And of course, Joe Biden will be 80 years old. And it's quite a new situation where you have a president, very low approval ratings, quite old. And if they get really hit hard, it may be that he doesn't run again for president. Now, that might seem implausible, but there was polling out quite recently, which showed that 64% of Americans don't want Joe Biden to run again. Similar polling put Trump at 58%. So I, I'm not saying that there's a huge appetite for Trump and that Biden, you know, is yesterday's man. Two-thirds of Americans don't think that Biden should run again. One poll for Redfield and Wilton, a credible pollster, had uh, Trump five points ahead. Five points ahead. And that's only one year into the Biden presidency. So I do think we have to contemplate the very real possibility, not the inevitability, there may be another Democratic candidate, the Trump candidacy may go nowhere, the Republican Party may implode for whatever reason. We have no idea in politics. As the uh, adage goes, events the avoid events. Of course, things change. Look at COVID. I personally think Trump wins the second term if COVID doesn't happen. So you can't write any outcome off. But I think right now, looking at it, Trump wins as big or bigger in 2024 as he did in 2016. Of course, Trump isn't a, a, a spring chicken himself. That's another thing to contemplate here, Michael. But I think you look at the US Democratic Party, which has been the problem, actually. The moderate wing of the Democratic Party has been the problem here, in particular two or three individuals when you look at the, the legislature. But actually, generally speaking, in terms of fostering a big, broad working class movement, encompassing social movements, encompassing various minority groups, etc., that's not been their theory of change. Their theory of change has been, you know, swing Democrat, Republican voters in two or three states, get friendly old Joe, and we'll get over the line. With COVID, that worked. 
I think we'll find out had there not been COVID, it probably wouldn't have worked and speculate that until the cows come home. But we'll have a good idea whether or not that's true come 2022, come those midterms. So yes, the US is in decline as an imperial power internally, externally. And we need to buckle up for some pretty hairy elections next year and in 2024. The big missed opportunity, I suppose, as well from Joe Biden and the, and the Democrats is that they haven't, they haven't used this opportunity in any way to sort out America's defunct democratic system. I remember when, when Joe Biden first won and they had all three branches of government, sorry, people like David Shaw, Eric Levitz were saying this is potentially the last chance the Democrats are going to have to reform the Senate so it's not always weighted in favor of the Republicans to reform the electoral system so that the, the Republicans can't rig, rig it and you're not then stuck with minority rule in perpetuity. And when minority rule in perpetuity means Republican rule and this kind of deaf cult Republican party, I can't really see where it's going. It does really, really scare me. I feel like we need action over the next decade on climate change. Yes, the guests we've had on before have said Joe Biden and the, the Americans are still a block to this because they're so intent mm -hmm. on, on increasing the yeah. power of corporations. At least they accept the science, which is a start. At least they will promote green energy. They're not going to significantly tackle the power of the corporations who we need to rein in if we're going to stop climate change. But they're not going to do what I think Trump or a Trumpist would do, which is just break down the whole process altogether and we'd lose another decade. So it's, I'm concerned, Aaron. I'm very concerned. Yeah, I think as well, Michael, the politics of the White House are a big signal to other major states. So you look at Bolsonaro. Again, we can write this off, but he said at COP, you know, we will stop deforestation by 2030. You're looking at other countries saying, we're going to phase out coal. The Ukraine said it, I think, today. Great news. They're going to gas instead. So not perfect, but good, an improvement. And I think that the White House saying, we're going to dig as much coal as possible, climate deniers, that does send signals to countries like Canada, Australia, Brazil. These are huge, huge emitters. You know, Canada, Australia per head, emitting twice as many emissions per capita as somewhere like China. Actually, per head, they're as bad as the US. Obviously, they have far fewer people, so it's not as big a problem. Australia, today, the world's number one coal exporter, exports prodigious amounts of coal. And Trump being in the White House is not going to make that figure go down. So I agree with you. From a climate perspective, it's deadly. But I also think it would be existential for the US Republic. And the thing that surprised me the most, Michael, is that the one aspect of this entire story where I thought we would not see Trump return to the White House was a sense of self-preservation by the patrician liberal part of the US establishment, who should understand, if they're smart enough, that if Trump gets back in, there's going to be major changes. I don't like to talk about fascism and that stuff because I don't think they're necessarily useful terms. But like you said, this was possibly the last opportunity they'll have to fix quite a few major kind of malfunctions in the American democratic system. Issues around suffrage, around sort of gerrymandering, around who can vote, what borders are where, around just the process of democracy. Throw into the long grass big conversations about, you know, the, the whole electoral system and whatnot. So what I think we'll see is polarization. But I guess the answer as well is, look, it's a federal system, Michael. You do have 15, 16 states in the US, which would probably want to be part of a, a global movement to decarbonize. You may just see a fracturing, not, not may, you would. You would see a major fracturing along state lines when we talk about the sort of the demise of, of the US Republic. So there will be places for progressives to live and they'll have progressive values and they'll have reusable cups and they'll be decarbonizing and have solar energy and rights to abortion. But it, it won't be 
right across the board. And, and I suppose, you know, that again, that goes back to the debate which has been at the heart of American democracy for 250 years about how centralized should it be as a state. It is a federal state. It's been a federal state for a long time. In the 30s with FDR, it was significantly centralized. And one of the big projects of Republican governance since then has been to push that right back. So it is terrifying. And, and I think that's where the conversation around, again, China, and I talked about it a lot before COP26, comes to the fore. Because if the US does go to Trump and effectively this wing of the Republican Party regularly governs the United States and certainly wins in 2024, then China has to be a leader on climate change. And if it isn't, people are talking about, oh, 1.5, still alive, two degrees. Right now, the data is on present trends. By the end of this century, we hit 2.4. And without China, without the US, it's going to be way higher than that, Michael. And three degrees is, is chaotic. And of course, the concern is, not in our lifetimes, but over the next several centuries and millennia, but several centuries is quite reasonable, Three degrees goes to four to five to six. Six degrees, so hot. There are such high concentrations of methane in the atmosphere that anything with lungs can't breathe. That's a big problem. So you're right. From the perspective of climate, what happens in the White House in 2024, hugely important. And if the climate movement loses that and China doesn't do what it's doing, which is why I'm quite optimistic about China, because I think it's going in a positive direction, we have major problems. I mean, the thing with China is you might not like the CCP, but they're not they're not a science denying death cult. They understand the long term interests of China. And actually, when it comes to climate, the long term interests of China basically are, are quite aligned with with everyone else. One, one fifth of the population of the globe lives there. A couple of comments. Jovian R asks, what do you both think Kamala Harris's chances would be for president? Not very good. Um, her approval ratings are currently worse than Joe Biden. I think in head to heads, she generally comes out worse as well. She's a very shallow politician. I thought she collapsed immediately in the primaries because it was clear she didn't really believe in anything or have anything to say. Then what has happened since then is I think Joe Biden isn't really doing her any favors. The task they gave her was to sort out migration on the southern border, which is, if you think of it as a problem and in terms of American politics, that does pose problems to whoever's in power. You've given her an unsolvable one. So I, I think she's a weak candidate who who hasn't been helped by Joe Biden. So I'm I'm not sure who they're going to stand in 2024. People are saying maybe Pete Buttigieg is, is who they want to go for. On Twitch chat, let's go to this. Goff Soup Dragon asks, will you cover the story in Wales where Welsh Labour have reached a deal with Plaid Cymru to work together, left-wing policies and unhappy Welsh Tories? I have to say I'm not exactly on top of this, but it does look very exciting. And I think from your Twitter feed, Aaron, you might be slightly more on top of this than me. Could you comment on that agreement? It's been a long time in the making. Um, I had the pleasure of going to Wales a few months ago, wrote a few pieces for our Breakup of Britain series, spoke to Labour members, activists who also want an independent Wales. And, and there is actually a great deal of consensus between the Welsh Labour membership and Plaid members. You would speak to members from both parties and they were saying effectively the same thing. One of the sort of major speeches in, in the history of Welsh Labour over the last 20 years was a speech given by a former Labour leader. The speech was written by Mark Drakeford about putting clear red water between Cardiff and Welsh Labour and the Westminster Party. Uh, and so it's a very different kind of political formation. Now, that doesn't mean they're all socialists. There are many right-wingers in the Welsh Labour Party. It has its own problems. And of course, the Welsh Labour MPs at Westminster aren't exactly the brightest and the best. I think Chris Bryant, Owen Smith, and more besides. So... It's an interesting arrangement. Let's see how much comes out of it. I've seen it being poo-pooed 
by sort of left-wing Welsh activists, journalists, etc. I don't think they understand how bad things are in, in England. And already, actually, you've got some really interesting progressive policy coming out of Wales. You know, you've got stuff around future generations, public service provision taking quite a different kind of direction. Yes, the labor rights there. I've said this before. I said it in those pieces that I wrote. The big defining moment for Welsh Labour is who succeeds, and actually Welsh politics, is who succeeds Mark Drakeford. If it's a Welsh Labour leader on the left like him, I think you're going to see a permanent and significant divergence between Welsh Labour and, and the Westminster Labour Party. Could be somebody from the right of the party. And hey, look, even Keir Starmer might try and, he might even try and impose somebody. Now, when I put that to members, they said, absolutely no way. But I think they said it not really being familiar with just how bad Keir Starmer is uh, on these things. I've seen it up close and personal. I think they would at least be persuaded of trying something like that. Would, of course, be political kamikaze, given how successful Welsh Labour is. But it wouldn't be the first time they've done that. So very promising, a long time in the making. And I think in many ways, Welsh politics is actually more exciting than what's going on in Scotland. Let's go to our final story. Boris Johnson today gave a speech to the Confederation of British Industry that had the country asking, is the Prime Minister drunk? The topic of the speech to business leaders was a so-called green industrial revolution, and Boris Johnson announced a requirement for new homes to have car charging points. The announcement was accompanied by the following impression. And that tipping point having been reached, the pace of change is now going to accelerate like a new Tesla. Because I can tell you as a former motoring correspondent, EVs may not burble like sucking doves and they may not have that rum, rum, rah, rah, that you love. Uh, that was but Boris they Johnson so on electric cars. He then went on to cartoon characters. Than a Ferrari. And Tony, yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, 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 to, to Peppa Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to, how's that who's been to Peppa Pig World? Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 it has uh, a uh, very safe streets, uh, discipline in schools, uh, heavy emphasis on new mass transit systems, I, I notice, uh, even if they're a bit stereotypical about, about Daddy Pig. If you thought both of those clips or awkward, it only got worse. So with, with safer streets, uh, with great local schools, uh, with fantastic uh, broadband, uh, uh, forgive me, forgive me. Forgive me. We, people will have the confidence to stay nearer the place they grew up to start business. The speech, or at least its delivery, was widely derided, and the Labour Party um, got in on the act. So they tweeted the following: "The joke's not funny anymore," which is a, a repetition of a line Keir Starmer used recently at Prime Minister's questions. He's said it a few times now. This is this is a new a new line. They are going with. I can also see actually just updated on, on my Twitter. Apparently a senior Downing Street source 
has told the BBC that business was really looking for leadership today and it was shambolic. They added there was a lot of concern inside the building about Mr. Johnson. So there are people in, in Downing Street upset about Boris Johnson's performance. That's according to the BBC. Um, Aaron, was this speech a genuine flop or are we just looking at Boris Johnson being Boris Johnson and this is his USP, which is to be silly and entertaining in you know moments that most people would think were, were inappropriate to behave in such a way? I think some people have to make up their minds, Michael, the critics of Boris Johnson. I mean, I mark myself as a critic of Boris Johnson, but people say, he's a fascist. You know, he's a fascist. He's a neo-fascist. You know, Trump, Johnson, and then he's banging on about Peppa Pig and doesn't really make it very convincing fascist if he's talking about a cartoon piglet. So I think, actually, one thing, I'll say a positive thing about Keir Starmer. He said that he's not a bad man. Or he's a bad man, of course, but he's a trivial man. And I feel like this is a trivial subject. And my worry is with Labour to focus on the trivialities. You know, I saw loads of people on Twitter just losing the plot. Going, ah, he's lost his pay, pay, place in a speech. He should resign. Really? He should probably resign for some other things. It, it reminded me of the wallpaper stuff. Now, I think this lands more than the wallpaper because this is quite visceral. And there's literally a video clip of him looking like a complete idiot and incompetent. I'm more concerned, however, about the political substance of what the CBI is saying, uh, or the industrial policy of the Labour Party, or the Conservative Party. And in this country, Michael, we have a media class, and a political class, obsessed with triviality. Obsessed with triviality. And as long as we have a media class and journalists fixated with triviality to this extent, like we're in some bad game show, we aren't going to solve the major problems that confront us as a society. Demographic aging, climate change, income inequality, housing crisis, infrastructure, COVID, or even the next pathogen. God help us when that comes. So, yes, it's funny. Yes, it makes you laugh. Yes, it's good that the opposition can land some blows on this and discredit the, the party of government, of course. But also don't discount the fact that there'll be Tories waiting in the wings, Sajid Javid rubbing his hands together going, oh, you know, I can step in next. And Sajid Javid, he's looking at the tax rises saying, no, thank you. He's looking at the spending on public transport, which, yes, they weren't what was previously promised, but still a major shift for the Conservative Party in the context of the last 30, 40 years. He would never do that. So this could very much empower certain elements on the right of the Conservative Party who want less state spending, lower taxation rates. Because Boris Johnson is operating in a context, COVID, Brexit, where he's had to do those things. And they're very angry with him. So he is politically weak. The idea that he's untouchable in Teflon, just not true. He is very exposed politically because he's going against the core values and policy positions of, of many of his own MPs. But I'd be worried as journalists that we're sort of talking about how bad one speech was. Let's talk about the fact that the CBI, which, by the way, if there is a failure of an organization when it comes to interest representation. Nobody has failed in representing interests like the CBI in representing the interests of British industry over the last 10 years. You know, they've been, they were talk, talking about, we need austerity in 2010, and then today they're saying, we've not invested enough in public infrastructure. That's what you wanted. That's what you wanted. So that contradiction for me is more interesting than Boris Johnson talking about Peppa Pig. The captains of British industry, if I call them that, they're mostly useless. Actually, the head of the CBI, Michael, he's just another think tanker. He's another guy who worked in a consultancy. So he's talking private enterprise and private business. And you've never done it. You know, if the guy had started his own business, worked in a, you know, had his family business, worked his way up, worked in a multinational, fine. But he actually was, a, you know, an advisor and a consultant. He went on the exact same trajectory 
as many people within the Labour Party. And they try and talk with such credibility about business. Keir Starmer does the same thing. You're a lawyer. That's fine. Society needs lawyers. But don't start talking about fiduciary and, you know, fiscal policy and all this stuff. Very worrying, Michael. But I'll finish with this. My focus would be on the on the failures of British industrial policy over the last 10 years, led on by the CBI, cheered on by the Conservative Party, and until Jeremy Corbyn, never resisted by the Labour Party. That deserves our scrutiny, not Peppa Pig. In your answer, even though I, I agree with you, the whole speech thing is trivial, but you did make a case as to why it wouldn't matter if, if Boris Johnson's downfall was imminent. And on that topic, there was an interesting piece in The Guardian um, that I want us to, to briefly cover. It's by Will Davies, friend of the show. Um, and in the piece, he compares Boris Johnson to a financial asset traded on the stock market. So in the piece, he writes... Johnson's political stock resembles a financial asset in a number of ways. First, he is of no intrinsic value. That he has no aptitude for or interest in governing was known before the pandemic, but took on a fatal dimension in March 2020, at the cost of many thousands of lives. He lacks any consistent political vision or ideology, and runs scared of difficult decisions beyond following whichever advice he received last. We know that he is also hedonistic and lazy, hence the constant holidays. Given all of this, his compulsive lying is not even his worst trait as leader. All of this raises the obvious question of how he found himself in such a job in the first place. This is the second way in which Johnson resembles a financial asset. His value is founded on the fact that his supporters are all watching one another as much as him. Like a dot-com company circa 1999, he is someone to get behind so long as everyone else is behind him. But especially the media. So Davies says it's, it's this media attention especially from, for example, hosting Have I Got News For You or having a Telegraph column um, that has made Boris Johnson a focal point for people on the right. They've got their own political agendas. They want someone to front it who is recognisable. They choose Boris Johnson. Davies, though, however, also says that it's Johnson's reliance on the media and media attention that could prove to be his downfall. So he writes next, financial assets suffer a major deficiency, an absence of investor loyalty. No doubt Johnson has close friends scattered around the higher reaches of the media and the Conservative Party, but it's hard to identify any Johnsonites, given how little he stands for beyond himself. As a celebrity, he is better suited to attracting fans than allies. The recent tightening of the polls and negative headlines surrounding corruption may not represent a bursting of the Boris bubble, but they do clarify how little Johnson has to fall back on should the press turn truly hostile. He then says, Cummings presumably flatters himself that like some hedge fund wizard, he started shorting the stock at just the right moment. It's always a mistake to underestimate Johnson's tenacity and hunger for power, but a political opportunist can scarcely expect anything more than opportunistic support. It's likely that once one set of investors pulls out, such as the Murdoch press, many others will flee. Aaron, I wanted to know your take on, on that argument. Is Boris Johnson like a financial asset in the sense he's got no intrinsic value and that means that his stock could fall as quickly as it has in the past risen? Could, could this whole thing just collapse internally and either that hand over Downing Street to the Labour Party or whoever in the Conservative Party wants to replace him? I mean, I really disagree. I mean, that just, I like Will, uh, but that just reads very strangely. Just had the local elections, Labour did terribly. The Tories have won Hartlepool. They almost won Batley and Spen. The guys won a majority of 80. When everybody, all the London Liberals were saying that Remain was going to get 60% of the electorate, 
running on leave was actually what got the Tories over the line. He waited for his time and actually did incredibly well in becoming Tory leader. He won twice as the mayor of London. The idea that he's like, come on, everything's I've got this giant brain and this guy's, he, he's nothing on them. Come on. I just don't think it's realistic. Labour looking good, clearly improving. The idea that you discount all of that, on, and in some opinion polls, Labour are now level with the Tories two years out from election. Come on. I just don't think it's realistic. I do think he's having to do things which he wouldn't normally do, which is clearly angering his base and angering MPs, people like Sajid Javid, you know, committed free marketeers, and they don't like what he's doing. If they were in his situation, they would have to do something very similar, simply by virtue of the nation's finances and the challenges we face over the coming decades on decarbonisation, on, on demographic ageing, on the fact that a big part of their electoral mandate came from this thing about levelling up. They're going to have to spend more on infrastructure. They're going to have to, uh, unless they want to lose those votes. So I, 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 think that's, I think that's a bit strange. And look, when, when Ed Miliband was leading the opposition 18 months into the, the Cameron Osborne thing, he would be polling eight, 10 points ahead, right? Labour just sort of level pegging now. So I think it's a bit presumptuous to say that. We've never been here before. You know, I mean, being prime minister is very different to being mayor of London. It may be that the guy just completely collapses in flames, but there are many, many, many MPs, Michael, who owe their seats to him. And so that does establish some loyalty. Who replaces him? Who's the stalking horse that is credible in their eyes? And they think, well, I won't lose my job if that person is the next PM. Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel. It's tough. I mean, I think Rishi Sunak's probably their best bet, but he's very untested fundamentally. And then finally, and this boils down to sort of my, my core thoughts on this, what, do they think the media is going to back the Labour Party? Because even Keir Starmer, everything he's doing, everything he's saying is still well to the left of, of the Labour Party of Ed Miliband on, on HS2, on Northern Powerhouse Rail, on levels of taxation. He's still got a party membership, which is a variable in British politics. Would you really want that party to be running the British state? Yeah, okay, it's nowhere near Jeremy Corbyn. Certainly you'd prefer Rishi Sunak running Whitehall and you know making sure your taxes weren't too high and so on. So I, I think this reflects a crisis actually of, of, of the economic orthodoxy we've been living in for 30, 40 years. And there's kind of like an aneurysm going on amongst the British establishment saying, we don't want to pay taxes this high. Well, you're going to have to, whoever's in charge. Great cover by The Economist this week, the return of the big state. It's back. Get used to it. Um, and, and for me, that's why Johnson's in trouble. But I don't think that necessarily creates political opportunities for his rivals either. So, yes, there's cause for concern. Let's see. Can he weather it? If he weathers it and then moves on and then moves to, again to five-point lead in the opinion polls, people forget about this. That said, today was very strange. But he's done many strange things, Michael. That's been his political brand for 20 years. He's done okay out of it. I think today is a much less of a big deal than the Owen Patterson stuff. I mean, that's what's making everyone doubt Boris Johnson's judgment. And I, I agree that the London mayor thing is, is interesting because that was a different project. But most of the successes over the past two years, be that the Brexit campaign or that 2019 general election, that was Dominic Cummings. He's gone. You agreed with Keir Starmer if he's a trivial man. He's a trivial man who's fronted a fair few non-trivial projects, but that's always usually because there is some non-trivial person behind him. Say what you like about Dominic Cummings. He's clearly someone who's reasonably intelligent, thinks strategically about what the electorate want and, and about the British state. Boris Johnson doesn't really do either of those things. So if he doesn't have that 
that person behind him to to give this project purpose. And he doesn't seem to have had much purpose over the past few weeks. I think the stuff on public transport for the Tories is is a, is a huge game changer for them. I mean, it's obviously nowhere near enough. And we talked about it with John Stone and Northern Powerhouse Rail. They've sold out on that. Full HS2, they've sold out on that. But the whole package, that would have been £180 billion. Pounds. You know, if they'd built that, that would have been the biggest departure from conservative orthodox in infrastructure imaginable, imaginable. And I thought he was going to do that because I thought that was Johnson's offer, right? I thought that's what Johnsonism was going to be. He's pulled back clearly because of the Treasury, but it's still a huge amount of money that's being spent. And I think almost as big for me, Michael, was the budget a month ago, giving all that money to Manchester, to Leeds, to Liverpool, to, to build much better localized transit systems. You know, you're going to see something similar with Leeds now as well. We, we, we found that out last week. So the idea that, oh, it's listless and it's not going anywhere and he hasn't really got any mojo. Actually, it seems to be much more propositional and actually filled with ideas and proposals than anything from the Cameron Osborne years. Right, but because they were wearing nice suits and they spoke nicely and they looked prim and proper, people are like, he looks like the prime minister. We forgot in this country, Michael, we can have nice things. People can build stuff. You can do stuff. You can actually create new government departments. You can actually solve problems. We forgot that with Cameron and Osborne. So I would not be buying Johnson's stock, but I certainly wouldn't be selling it either. Let's wrap up. Aaron, it's been a pleasure being joined by you on a Monday for a change. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. I'll be back Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.